there's more than one way to get off the beaten path to explore the history and beauty of distant lands. Like diving into the Mediterranean to explore the underwater ruins of ancient cities and shipwrecks. You can go inside the shipwreck. You can go into those little rooms. You can still see how it was the day it was sank. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we plunge into the world of underwater archaeology. And we explore eastern Turkey, a dry landscape that many believe once lay under the waters where Noah's Ark cruised and where they sell a wonderful local ice cream. It's made with the goat's milk, and there are the crushed roots of the wild orchid flowers picked from the Taurus Mountains. Plus, adventurer Richard Grant tells us about his crazy trip into swamps and dodgy war-scarred nations in East Africa in search of the fabled source of the Nile. You think your listeners are going to sign up for this? Let's delve into adventures far away from the tourist crowds in Turkey and East Africa on today's Travel with Rick Steves. We're venturing outside the usual bubble that insulates tourists from the risks, real or imagined, that come with visiting exotic places well off the beaten path on today's Travel with Rick Steves. We'll start out with tips for going beneath the surface of the Mediterranean, where a dive can take you into the realm of ancient mariners. Then we head inland into eastern Turkey, where you'll find some of Anatolia's most surprising sites and people whose way of life hasn't changed much for thousands of years. Well, if you don't count all the satellite dishes. And we'll end up with adventurer Richard Grant, who tells us about the wild ride he experienced exploring the parts of East Africa that don't appear in any tourist brochures. Right now, Thailand Tashbashi introduces us to the incredible history you can encounter under the sea, from ports on the Mediterranean and Aegean coasts of Turkey. Thailand, thanks for joining us. Hello, Rick. Now, your wife actually runs a company where she dives with tourists, is that right? Yes, that's right. Uh, It's down in Antalya, in a little town called Kemer. I've never heard of Americans going to Turkey to dive. Who are most of her customers? You are right. Most of our customers are Europeans. We are mainly working for French people right now. And what do people come to Turkey to see when they go diving? What's interesting about diving in Turkey is we don't have too many natural sites. We don't have big corals such as you can see in Caribbean or like in Egypt, but we have historical sites to dive. Okay, so that's the difference. You dive for ancient history or or shipwrecks, basically. Yeah, fishes and ancient history. So you see fish and you see history. Exactly. Where you see the shipwrecks, you see big, big fishes too. So tell me, what's the most exciting thing a French person's going to look for when they come to Turkey to go with you or your wife and go diving? Actually, it is kind of funny that they come and dive to a French shipwreck, which was sank by the Ottomans during First World War. A French ship. A French ah, ship. Ah, so the French Navy came over there and messed around with the Ottomans. Exactly. The Ottomans sank it. Yep. So 100 years ago, basically. Yes, yes. Wow. There are very interesting stories about how it was sank. Have you L- seen this boat? Yes, I've been. What I've do you been. see when you go swimming in it? It's so impressive. They take you off the marina only for 10 minutes of cruising. And then once you jump into the water, you follow a rope, which will take you down to the uh, oh, so it's boat. that easy. You could just pull yourself down by the rope from the surface yes, down to the boat. Yes, You have to be an advanced diver to do certain dives. This one is an advanced dive, but okay. there are easy dives too. But just because this is an original shipwreck, you need to be an advanced diver. Especially. Why would you need to be an expert diver for this particular shipwreck? Uh, this is below 18 meters. So it's deeper than, than 18 many. to 35 meters. If you think about the Mediterranean in general, you've been doing this professionally for many years now. What are the big places to go to do some historic diving? For historic diving, I would say first Bodrum and Kash. So Bodrum is the southwest tip of Turkey. Yes. And Kash is where? Kash is in between, actually, Antalya and Kemer along the Mediterranean coast. And then whether you've been there or not, just when you think of everywhere from Israel to Gibraltar, yep. what are the famous places to see underwater? Egypt is very, very exciting. What uh, do they have there? There are several places, especially Sharm el-Sheikh, with historic wrecks to see. No, this is not oh, that's natural. just beautiful, but natural stuff. Historic, yeah. historic wrecks. Uh, I think we have more historic wrecks than the other Mediterranean countries. Sounds like in Bodrum, on the southwest tip of Turkey, there is the Underwater Archaeological Museum. Yes. Sounds like it's a wonderful place. Explain that to us. Actually, it's the first underwater archaeological museum in the whole world. What are the highlights of this museum? This is the place where underwater archaeology started. Really? Back in 1960s. Who started it? It was started by Professor George Bass from Texas A&M University. An American? Yes. Huh. 
he started the whole system of underwater archaeology. And this was just in the 60s, you said? 1960s, yes. Before that, people basically didn't look at it. It, well, thanks to the sponge divers that we started learning about these underwater sites, underwater shipwrecks, that it was easy for them to spot and do an excavation. I've, I've been in places in Turkey where it seems like the ancient town, and remember, much of Western Turkey uh, was uh, the heartland of, of Greek culture, Ionia, right? Yeah. And you've got some beautiful ruined cities from the time of classical Greece that sort of seem to go right into the water. Why is that? Mainly because of earthquakes. Because there's like roads lined with Greek columns that go right right into the sea. You're right. You're right. Uh, Because of landslides and earthquakes. What's a good one of these to check out if somebody wants to Um, look? In Turkey, we have Kekoa, which is called the Sunken Island, about 10 feet under under the water. You can see the foundations of the buildings, some steps going into the houses underwater. Talk to me about a shipwreck from this period, from ancient times. Are there any actual ships, and have they contributed to what archaeologists know about these ancient cultures? When we get back to Bodrum Museum, Underwater Archaeological Museum, if you go there, it's a fascinating castle. It's actually a crusader castle, which is the house of one of the oldest shipwrecks called Uluburun Shipwreck. This is from Bronze Age periods, it's actually around 2000 BC from 2000, so about like 4,000 years old shipwreck. Uluburun. Uluburun. U-L-U-B-U-R-U-N. So this is a shipwreck from the Bronze Age, and you actually dive down there to see this, or is it just all excavated and put into the castle? This is excavated and put into the castle. But lately, a team produced a replica of it and sank it. They made it according to the original techniques. And they sank it off the coast somewhere from Kash. What sort of cargo do we look at today? The cargo that it was carrying, it was a merchant ship, uh, lead, copper, amphoras, which are big clay jars to carry liquids, which were mainly carrying wine and beer and olive oil. Because we have bottles and barrels and all sorts of things today, but back then all liquids were seemed to be carried in amphoras. Exactly. And you find amphoras all over the Mediterranean world. Exactly. There's a literal mountain of broken amphoras in Rome at the port. You're right. They just break them, throw them over there, and it literally stacked up a whole mountain of them. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about historical dives in the Mediterranean with Thailand Tashbashi and Thailand and his wife run a historical diving tour company. Thailand, in all of your diving, have you ever seen something shiny and historic and decided to put it into your bag? I have seen a lot of shiny things, but even if I was very tempted to do it, I did not do it because it's illegal to do such Strictly illegal. Very strict. Wow. Also not ethical, too. Right. If everybody took them, there'd be nothing there for other people to see. There won't be anything to see. So, Thailand, let's say I'm going to be traveling around Turkey, and I, I don't really want to do scuba diving. I'm just a snorkeler, and I'd like to see some very old things underwater. Can I do that? Yes, you can. In Bodrum, in Kash, uh, where we have the diving schools, they also provide snorkeling tours too. You can actually see... You uh, you can actually see uh, some of the shipwrecks that the divers are diving still and some... So Bodrum and Kash are the places you'd recommend if somebody wants to get wet and get historic at the same time. Bodrum, Kash, and where I live, Kemer. How do you spell Kemer? K-E-M-E-R. That's Antalya. Antalya. Okay, Antalya on the south coast of Turkey. Thailand, I'd also like to talk about just hiring a a boat and taking a day trip or something. I know when you go to Antalya or any number of ports on the south coast of Turkey, there are men who own boats that you can just strike up a conversation with and and hire the boat for three or four hours with the captain. Yes, you can if you have a good deal and you'll surely have fun too. These boats are really nice. They're, They're all wooden and handmade boats, local boats. So let's say you're gang up with a couple of friends from your pension and mm-hmm. you have uh, pool your money and you want to go for a swim and a little sightseeing and have a, a nice meal and some drinks on the boat. What would you organize and what would it cost? The captain and the crew might organize you a little trip with a lunch mm-hmm. uh, included. Depending on the size of the boat and the quality of the boat might change between $100 per person to... Four or five people, people. basic boat, uh, an afternoon of uh, swimming and sightseeing and a nice dinner and some drinks. What would he charge you? 200 to $600. 
for the whole group. Yes. So for a hundred bucks a person, you can get yourself a yes. very nice excursion. Yes. yes. Can you set that up just on the flyer, or do you need to make that a reservation in advance? Uh, you just go and find your boat and talk to the captain. Talk to the captain. That's that's the way it works. I've done that many times. Just run along the harbor, talk to the different captains. Some of them are hungry, some of them are not. They right. tell you come back in an hour, and they'll they'll get the food for you and all the drinks, and then you're on your way. Yes. And if you know how to dive, you can uh, probably see some ancient sites at the same time. Yes. Thailand, pretend I'm diving with you, and we're going down into the Mediterranean to not a, a modern ship, not a fake ship, but an actual ancient ship. What will we see? First, you start going down. You see nothing. And then you see a shade, a big black shade under the water. As you get closer... Like a ghost of a ship. Exactly. As you get closer, you'll start seeing the outlines of it. And it's been down here for centuries. And it's been waiting for you to discover. And you get closer. And as you get closer, you'll start seeing what happened to it and how, how it looked like in the original. You can see the holes that was drilled by those cannons that was shot at them. That sank it? Yeah. You can and you've got see fins, and you've got fins, so you can motor yourself quite uh, handily around the boat. Yes, you can go inside the shipwreck. You can go into those little rooms. You can still see how it was the day it was sank. The it's things just, are still—it's just frozen in time. Exactly, frozen in water. Beautiful. And what's the lighting like? Usually, the rays—the sun rays. Sun rays are, cutting sun rays through the Mediterranean. Through the Mediterranean, they're they're, they're very beautiful to see. You have to do it early in the morning so that you get a very clear visibility. Sunrise, history, the exhilaration of exploring this on your own. Definitely, yes. You've been, you've been diving historically with your wife for years. What is your very favorite experience when you're underwater in the Mediterranean? I would definitely say that it was the time when I first saw my first amphora underwater, a broken amphora. I first didn't realize it. My wife pointed it me out, and when I first saw, saw it, it was like... Was this in a museum underwater, or was no, this just... it was underwater. You discovered your own amphora. Maybe we, it, we were the first ones who discovered it. Or and how many not. centuries would that have been sitting there? Could have been thousand years. Could have been back to Roman times. Could have been. Thailand's amphora. <laughs> nice. Thailand Tashbashi, thank you very much. And uh, someday uh, maybe you can take me diving off the coast of Turkey. I'd love to. We'll head for the backside of East Africa in just a bit. But our next stop on Travel with Rick Steves takes us to the other side of Turkey, east, into the dry plains and snow-capped mountains of Asia Minor. It's where tourist crowds are rare, as you follow the shadow of ancient caravan routes into the legendary stomping grounds of Abraham and Noah. You can share your adventures and thoughts with us via email. Our address is radio at ricksteves.com. Hi, I'm Katarina from Prague, Czech Republic, and I have one tongue breaker for you. It's great to practice the most difficult letter in this alphabet, what we have, and that's the R. So we go like. 333 stříbrných stříkaček stříkalo přes 333 stříbrných střech. What basically means that 
333 silver houses were watering 333 silver roofs. And if we can again practice that, 333 stříbrných stříkaček stříkalo přes 333 stříbrných střech. I love Turkey. And when you look at a map of Turkey, everything of tourist interest seems to be in the west. And the east is just empty. But when you travel in Turkey, you realize that there's a lot in the east. That's what we're going to talk about today, some powerful travel opportunities in the east of Turkey. And we're joined by two Turkish tour guides and friends of mine, Lali Sermon Aran and Tan Aran. Tan and Lali, thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting us, Rick. Thank you, Rick. Why would anybody bother to go to the hardship of traveling into the wild and rough-and-tumble eastern part of Turkey? Well, that's a hard question to, to answer. Um, Are you saying stay in Istanbul? <laughs> <laughs> eastern Turkey has some of the qualities still untouched that makes the mosaic of Turkey. Compared to the western part of the country, it's uh, rugged, it's untouched, it's uh, less polluted, and has some of the most must-see sites in Turkey. Yeah, Lolly, what would be the highlights of eastern Turkey for you? Uh, there would be many of them. First of all, the people would be the number one ranking highlight of eastern Turkey. Mm-hmm. They're hospitable, nice, welcoming of visitors. But other than the people, of course, you should realize the history behind what's eastern Turkey today. It's Upper Mesopotamia. The Fertile Crescent. Yes, it's Upper Mesopotamia. So for thousands of years, several civilizations went through, lived in the soil of what we call eastern Turkey today. There are many archaeological and ancient sites you can visit. When you go to the villages, you still see traditions of thousands of years going on. Like in Haran. I was in Haran, and it blew me away. It's the home of uh, Abraham, Abraham, of the Old Testament. Exactly. And it would be one of the highlights. Haran and beehive homes where people lived thousand years ago. Probably Abraham lived in such a home where people still do live. What century would that have been, Abraham? Do you know roughly? Six, well, 600 BC, something like this? It's speculated. Um, some say about 1,200. Centuries before Christ. Yes. Haran, H-A-R-R-A-N. Exactly. You go there, and you go to these beehive homes, these conical mud brick homes, mm-hmm. and it can be uh, 120 degrees outside. And it's cool inside. You step homes. inside, it's incredibly cool. Natural air conditioning that hasn't changed for 2,000 years. Exactly. Functioning in mm-hmm. the 21st century. What else in Haran do you remember? Uh, the university complex. See, very many of the virtues of the Greek culture passed on to uh, the European cultures through Islam initially. Uh, so that is uh, probably one of the first universities in the world history actually uh, in dedicated to the education of um, teaching of Koran besides other positive sciences and uh, basically interpretations of earlier Greek records. Really? Serious scholarship in Haran? It is. Is this a contemporary university or are you saying it's, no, it's a, not a, an, an no, ancient No, that's university. an ancient university. Okay, so uh, dating back to the 8th, ninth centuries. And uh, I believe that's one of the most important educational centers of the past. Uh, a center of higher learning in Islam, in the Muslim world, in um, the 8th century. Yes. And they had this Old Testament Bible roots that they could take into their culture and then spread it through Islam. Kind of That and uh, earlier and Greek records. Pre-Christian. Pre-Christian yeah. records. Okay, so Western Europe got that through Islam from higher education centers like Haran. Uh, That information went on to Europe by the interpretations of Arabic records. Speaking more of biblical history, you've got Mount Ararat, a conical mountain. It's the tallest mountain, I think, in Turkey. It's a volcanic mountain, yes. 17,000 feet or something like that? Over 5,100 meters. About 16,000 feet or something like this. Mount Ararat, standing all alone, it seems. It just towers on the border where Iran and Armenia and Turkey all come together. Yes. And, of course, many people, when they think of Mount Ararat, they think the of Noah's, Noah's Ark. Ark. And in Turkish tourism, for generations, people have been thinking about Noah's Ark. Have there been expeditions up there? Uh, not necessarily. There are different theories about that. Some think Mount Ararat is the place where Noah's Ark landed. Some say that's somewhere in the upper Mesopotamia along the southeastern borderline of Turkey. That's more logical because uh, historical documents talk about floods in the Mesopotamian area in the past. Uh, so there are different speculations on the mountain which mountain that was. 
Uh, it's likely to be on the southeastern part of Turkey. You in guys the past, are breaking my heart. You mean Noah's Ark is not on Mount Ararat? Okay. Hey, that's like uh, 16,000 feet. I mean, <laughs> well, it was a no big flood. flood. It was a big flood. It was a huge <laughs> flood, biblical proportions. Killed everybody. It flooded everything. There was just like two yeah. unicorns um, and two horses. Do you horses? remember National Geographic actually was uh, making a research about the Black Sea? Actually, yeah. Black Sea was a basin, and uh, that was lower than the sea level. Actually, that was a big problem when the last bit of land collapse to the north of the Bosphorus, and uh, water rushed into the Black Sea Basin. Oh. And uh, very many of these tribes actually escaped. That's how they explain it, uh, ended up in the Middle East. There were some expeditions in the past for the search of the Noah's Ark on Mount Ararat. Some of them claim that they have found remnants of very, very old wood items, but they are not identified of what they could be part of. So it's a question mark. And according to the local belief in Turkey, according to the Muslim belief, the Noah's Ark landed on a mountain in Ararat, not on Mount Ararat. Ah, Ararat is the name of a historical region there, mountains of Ararat. So it's ah. not one mountain. And so it, Muslims have the same story in the exact, Quran. Exactly. And they interpret it not as Mount Ararat, but as a region called Ararat. Yes. Landed on a mountain in Ararat. Oh, so there is a little confusion there, and, and uh, understandably so. Well, there's one indisputable mountain site, and that is Nimrut Da, right? Yes, this, it I, is. I've hiked up there at Krakadon, and it's incredible. On the top of this, another solitary mountain, you find these ancient statues built by some megalomaniac king. It was a kingdom. Uh, it was a buffer kingdom between Persia and Greece once upon a time, and their king identified himself with the Greek gods. So therefore, as a mausoleum, he had this mound built on top of a mountain. It's a pile of huge rocks. So on this top was of his mausoleum. He buried yes. himself literally on top of a mountain. Yes. And he was a, a sort of a thug dictator king of a two-bit mediocre empire or kingdom? Well, we can't really say that, but the kingdom of Komagene, that was the name of the kingdom. Kingdom was a buffer kingdom, buffer zone between Greece and Persia. And it's just kept these two big empires from one okay. another, away from one another. But he must have He wanted to be fortune. good to both sides. So that's the reason why uh, most of the gods actually have two different names, one in Persian, the other one in uh, Greek. Okay. They identify themselves with uh, two different cultures. So he had a so little they, dance. He, he, was, he was a clever. He was a political yeah. juggler. And, yeah. and he spent a fortune building this megalomaniac mausoleum mm, on yes. top of a mountain. I've, I've seen, there's nothing like it. No, there's nothing like it. It's amazing. And what century does that go back to? 2,000 years old. 2,000 mm -hmm. years old. And it's quite an ordeal to get up there, actually. You have to get up early. Uh, you have to ride a van for one and a half hours, basically, winding its way through the uh, rugged terrain. And the last portion, you, you either walk or uh, ride a mule. And it's a fairly long walk. It actually is not that long, but it's steep. Okay, I, I remember it as long, but maybe it's because it was steep. And it, uh, when, it is steep. Once you get up there, especially in the morning, the light is warm and um, it's just gorgeous. Could I suggest uh, to stay there for the sunset? For the sunset? Instead of the sunrise? Gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. gorgeous. Good. But I wanted, to, I wanted to get back down in the valley for the famous ice cream in that area. <laughs> to what? Marash? Yeah, tell me okay. about the ice cream that's uh, Actually, Lolly is uh, from a town. I'm from the... that city. You are? <laughs> yes. Well, tell me about your favorite ice cream. Kahraman Maraş'ın meşhur dövme dondurması. Gule gule. Does that make sense? Gule <laughs> <laughs> gule. No, but this ice cream, you cut it with a knife, right? Yes. It's a special ice cream. Um, it's made with the goat's milk, and there are the crushed roots of the wild orchid flowers picked from the Taurus Mountains. Wow. And this gives a gummy texture to the ice cream. It's not really a gum you can chew, but it stretches it and has got a denser texture. So you can cut it with a knife. And we like it most when we put it on top of baklava and eat it like that. And you put it on baklava? Yes. Well, that's one of my favorite things. Mm -hmm. Say the name of the ice cream again. Kahraman Maraş'ın meşhur dövme dondurması. I cut the first word because that's the city, right? Yes. What is the city? Kahraman Maraş is the name of the city. Kahraman Maraş'ın meşhur dövme dondurması literally translates into famous beaten ice cream of Kahraman Maraş. Famous beaten? Yes. So you beat it? Yes. Until you have to it. cut it with a... While they make it, they beat it okay. to obtain the denser texture. Oh, it sounds like an aphrodisiac. It's a good ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's high calorie. High calorie. Okay, good. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Tan Aran and Lali Sermon Aran. They run a tour company. Their website is srmtravel.com. 
or you can always connect with them through our website in the radio corner at ricksteves.com. Chris emails us from San Jose, California, and Chris writes, I'd recommend the museum in Gaziantep, which has Roman mosaics from Zugma, the easternmost outpost of the Roman Empire. What's with the, the Roman mosaics there in Gaziantep? It was a small but a very rich community in Zugma. Once upon a time, it was a garrison, as the listener says. It was a rich community, and the commanders and the higher-ranked people that lived there built very fascinating villas for themselves, decorated with mosaics. And this ancient city and the remnants of it were little known prior to the construction of the Ataturk Dam started. Then, as they were digging for the construction of the dam, they found out about the value of the archaeological remnants there and excavated the mosaics and carried them to the museum in Gaziantep because the ancient city was flooded under the waters of the dam. Oh, that's right, because when they did the Ataturk Dam, which is a mammoth engineering project that took a huge investment of the entire 70 million-person country of Turkey yes, exactly. to dam up the uh, Euphrates River and be able to control the floods and irrigate the land and, and uh, make hydroelectricity. Is that all yeah, of what for this all, did? For all that's one of the That's a part of a major project that's been going on for the past uh, three decades or so. And that incorporates more than 30 different dams, uh, reservoirs. That's a huge project. Ataturk Dam is uh, pretty much the biggest of these uh, dams built on the Euphrates and Tigris. People think that's Turkey's future. Because uh, think of eastern Turkey as barren land. You know, right. uh, you need water to yeah. uh, It feels come like with. a parched, vast See, we're talking about a fertile, fertile crescent of the past, but there was water. Now you've controlled the water. Now it's dry. You, can, you need to control it. You need to give water so to So now you can irrigate back. eastern Turkey because of um, the Ataturk Dam? We gained lots of farming land. But with, are, uh, this project. aren't you making all those thirsty people to the south in Syria and so on a little nervous because you control the uh, faucet of the Oops. big river? <laughs> Tell me what's <laughs> the deal with that. Politics. Uh, that's a major conflict point. But I mean, if I was Syria a Syrian and, and I saw Turkey uh, investing in this huge dam to control the river that was the life spring to my society, I would think Turkey has me by the, um, that controls my water supply. There are international agreements about that, and Turkey gives uh, a lot more water. Is that right? uh, Yes. So there's international community came in and said, Turkey, you can build this dam, but you can't use it to extort Syria. There are agreements between two countries, Turkey and Two countries and international agreements at the same time. We were just talking about a Roman mosaics there from 2,000 years ago in Zugma, right? Yes. And uh, that was going to be flooded by the dam, so it was saved Mm -hmm. and moved to Gaziantep Mm -hmm. to a great museum Mm -hmm. there. And when I was in Turkey... One thing that a, a tourist would notice is that you go to eastern Turkey, there's a lot of military people around. And part mm-hmm. of it is you guys have sort of some kind of a NATO obligation to keep a million men in arms, right? Like a million or so. A million. We keep under arms. You Not see, just the obligation, so, but it's so mandatory just, service in Turkey. So, uh, you know, we got pretty much a million under arms right now. And you see a lot of them in eastern Turkey. Uh, there's quite a few. Now, you got 10 million Kurds there. And there's Kurdish Turks, or there's Kurds that would rather be independent. What's the latest uh, Things changed in struggle? Turkey. I mean, uh, in the past, you know, we, we tried quite a few uh, expressions. We said uh, people of Turkey. We said natives of Turkey. We said uh, citizens of Turkey. But some people out there might want themselves to be identified as Kurds. Uh, we got no problems with that. Okay. This is a very um, sensitive issue. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a sensitive Turkey, issue. We, Americans have to remember mm-hmm. that Turkey is not in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. It's a very complicated demographic situation with a lot of difficult times in their past, consequently a lot of baggage today. And we've got this business in Iraq where the top third of Iraq is basically an autonomous Kurdish area now. Mm-hmm. And the concern of Turkey would be that 15% of its population that considers itself of ethnically Kurdish mm-hmm. might feel like, wow, we've got uh, a shot at independence here, but that would take away a, a critical part of Turkey. And Turkey's not going to let that happen any more than the United States would let you know, Washington State join British Columbia on some sort of a movement or a secession. Uh, so you've got that tension, and a tourist gets a, a feel for that when they go through the East. Travelers but, will be welcome. Uh, people of Eastern Turkey, uh, like the rest of the Middle East, are different in that sense. They just uh, do not bother travelers with their own problems. I feel that. It's uh, a very interesting thing. I've been there a lot. If you're part of this society, right. you can go without the rule, okay? If okay. you're part of the society, you have to play by the rule. They don't expect you to, you know, understand or, or do the same thing, but uh, people of Eastern Turkey are quite, I would say, uh, tolerating so it's, in their it's, behavior. If you, if you are arguably involved in the struggle, it might be a, a different kind of risk situation than if you're a tourist traveling through that region. Civilians do not have a risk. The I problem is between the military, basically, and uh, uh, yep. insurgents. 
I felt very comfortable throughout eastern Turkey. And I'll tell you, when you sail Lake Van and, and when you go to Gaziantep or, or Diyarbakir and you find the pride that people have for their corner of Turkey, it's really a very rewarding place to travel, even though it is a long way to go and uh, it lacks the, the famous sort of uh, marquee sites. You're going to have a rich experience with the people and the uh, different ethnicities. That's correct. It's the ethnicity that makes up... Uh this land. What you know about the Middle East today is uh, just conflicts. You you talk about Middle East, it's conflicts in your mind. But in the past, Middle East was the very cradle of civilizations. Not a clash point, but the mosaic of uh, cultures. And when we travel, we can celebrate that diversity, especially when we go one step beyond the norm and go to a place like eastern Turkey. Lolly, if you're taking a, a group of Americans to a town somewhere in eastern Turkey and you want to celebrate the cultural diversity of that area... Take me on a walk through the market and, and explain to me how I would see such a festival of different cultures all gathered together. I guess I would take you to the city of Mardin, which is north of Syria. It's a border city. It's a place where the Syrian Orthodox of the Turkish people live. The Syrian Orthodox still speak Aramaic, the language of Jesus. I would take you to a walk through the market of Mardin to hear different languages spoken Turkish, Arabic, Aramaic, and then visit the temples of different religions, and finally end up in a Syrian Aramaic church to listen to the prayer of our Holy Father in Aramaic. In the same language Jesus spoke? Yes. And that's in the town of Mardin, M-A-R-D-I-N, yes. just over the border from Syria, Yes. in eastern Turkey. And Ton, if you were to take an American visitor to some village or some place in eastern Turkey to be able to celebrate the ethnic and cultural diversity, what would you do? I would take you out to uh, summer pastures of the uh, nomads without the ID cards. Kurdish nomads in the easternmost part of the country on a plateau. Uh, Who don't uh, have elevation ID is like, cards. Uh, what do you mean by... Th they're not citizens. These people do not know anything about that. They just uh, cross the border between Iran and Turkey every year to go to their summer pastures. And that's very close to Lake Van, just to the north of Lake Van, at an elevation of uh, 8,500 feet, more or less. And uh, that's where you find the real people of the East. Would these be black tents? There'd be black tents all around. And it would be a real nomad camp or village or town. And a tourist could actually do that. Uh, you need connections you need to a, this. You need a guy, you but you can do that. This. And you must shake your head you and need just think, local content. this is a timeless wonder. Sitting, sure drinking tea with these nomads where Iran and Turkey come together. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Taneran, Lali Sermanaran, thanks a lot for taking us to the eastern half of your country. Thank you for coming with us. Thank you, Rick. Teşekkür. Rijayet eriz. Teşekkür. Now let's take Off the Beaten Path to New Heights in East Africa. Richard Grant joins us next to tell us about his wild ride in search of the source of the Nile River. It led him through uncharted swamps and war-scarred countries where few Westerners ever venture. And he packed in plenty of close calls to write home about. Richard Grant takes us down the crazy river next on Travel with Rick Steves. Most people who visit East Africa see it from the safety of an organized safari. But Richard Grant is a different kind of traveler. Much like the map-making explorers of years ago, he had to dodge hippos, crocodiles, and even bullets on what the locals call the River of Bad Spirits as he searched for the fabled source of the Nile. In his book, Crazy River, Richard details one wild ride after another as he navigates his way around the modern-day muddle of East Africa. From making friends in the seedy bars of Zanzibar, bargaining with street gangsters in war-torn Burundi, to securing an audience with the strong-arm president of Rwanda. Richard's with us right now on Travel with Rick Steves to share how the journey really was the adventure for him. Richard, thanks for joining us. Hey, Rick. Good to be on the show. What do you mean exactly from getting out of the bubble of safari tourism? Well, the first time I went to Africa was kind of a canoe safari and I thought I was being very adventurous, but I was met at the airport by terribly helpful individuals with air-conditioned land cruisers, and I was whisked away to a, a charming tented camp on the, on the banks of the Zambezi, and all my meals were catered for, and I had expert guides showing me around. And I really fell in love with Africa on that trip, and um, 
I decided to go back, and it wasn't until I went back on my own that I discovered what the safari bubble was. Probably 95% of the uh, people from Europe or the United States who go to East Africa do it within that bubble of safari tourism, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you can't really see it while you're inside it. It's only when you, <laughs> when, when you kind of fall out of it backwards like I did that it becomes apparent. So, Richard, you did this trip up some uncharted river, finding the source of the Nile. Give us a, a brief overview of your trip. Where'd you go? How long did it take you? Why did you do it? Uh, well, my trip, I started out in Zanzibar, and I made my way to the source of the Nile in Rwanda. And along the way, I attempted to make the first uh, descent of the Malagarasi River. And this, was, uh, this river was really the thing that got me intrigued. No one had ever gone down this river in a boat before. It was approximately 330 miles long. And I just couldn't find any information about this river. I mean, this was in 2007, and the Internet had barely heard of it. Huh. I just found it extraordinary there was still a, a kind of unknown, at least to the outside world, river in Africa. And uh, I decided I'd, I'd go and find out what was there. It seemed like a rare chance to do some exploring, although that's a kind of problematic word. Well, if there's nobody ever done it, if it's not on the Internet, there's no infrastructure for tourism, is there? No, there was no infrastructure for tourism, and it was also impossible to find out why no one had gone down it. <laughs> I, did, I did hear from somebody in Tanzania that the locals called it the River of Bad Spirits, which sounded a little discouraging. Why would they call it the River of Bad Spirits? Well, probably because bad things happen to them there, and uh, rural Africa, when bad things happen, spirits are involved. It seems like any two-bit explorer is going to try to find the true source of the Nile, and nobody's really done this, and, and you were able to. How can that be? The, the source of the Nile has been kind of um, fetishized by, by Europeans for about 4,000 years since the ancient Greeks. Mm. They thought that the source of the Nile would be the source of civilization itself. There have been expeditions since the ancient Romans. A lot of 19th-century Brits went looking for it. It was actually discovered finally in, in 2006. I didn't discover it. I went to see it shortly after it was discovered by an intrepid team of New Zealanders. Is there a definitive source, or is it just a bunch of little trickles that different people would claim? There are different tributary sources, and the one that they're claiming as the true source is the furthest from the mouth of the Nile in the Mediterranean, and it's, it's up a mountain in Rwanda. So you got there going up the Malagarasi River? Yeah, I mean, I, I made my kind of slightly disastrous journey down the river, and then I went overland to the source of the Nile. You wrote it was some sort of a symbol of folly, finally getting to the source of the Nile. What did you mean by that? Well, like I say, it's, it's, the source of the Nile is this sort of fetishized uh, geographical mm -hmm. abstraction, and then um, you get there, and it's just, uh, it's just a little dribble of water coming out of a hole in the ground. So your triumph was not really finding that then. What, what did you take home from your trip? It was kind of the only disappointment and anticlimax of the whole trip. My trip was a kind of a series of, of misadventures and delays and, and detours, uh, all of which led me into what was actually happening in contemporary East Africa. When I finally got to the source of the Nile, my, my destination, I just had to kind of laugh at myself and, mm -hmm. and uh, all the other crazy Europeans that had become so obsessed by this hole in the ground. The actual journey itself was, was more of the purpose than the destination for you. Exactly. I'm, I'm one of those travelers that, that is a lot more interested in, in what happens along the way than reaching a destination. Travel for me is about learning, you know, not getting there. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our guest is Richard Grant. He writes a book called Crazy River, Exploration and Folly in East Africa. Describe your boat and describe just being on the Malagarasi River, please. On the river, yeah. I mean, there was different phases of it. There was... There was about three days of what I'd been hoping for, which was a kind of uh, blissful floating along with incomparable wildlife and, and long-necked birds kind of flying against the sunset and camping on the riverbank. But the rest of it kind of swung between ordeal and fiasco. We came across an impenetrable swamp. We came across rapids and waterfalls. We had a very frightening run-in with bandits and poachers. And we got eaten alive by mosquitoes and tsetse flies. And all of us got fevers and... Sounds like a great holiday. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> uh, you, th you think your listeners are, are going to sign up for this? When you say we, was this, uh, did you have a local guide with you? I had a guide from Dar es Salaam, and I had a local fishing guide, and I had three other Tanzanians who were 
sort of helping paddle and uh, sort of keep the powder dry. We, we were quite well armed. You wrote that the challenges were more intellectual than physical. Yeah, I mean, there, there were physical challenges on, on the river, but for most of my time in Africa, I just became extremely interested in, in what was going on now in contemporary Africa, politically, ecologically. I went up through um, Burundi and into Rwanda and found myself sort of in the aftermath of a civil war in Burundi and then uh, kind of post-genocide Rwanda. And yeah, just trying to make sense of, of where you are and how it came to be this way and what was likely to happen next and sort of constantly floundering linguistically. And it sounds like you, you really stumbled onto some prizes. My image of Rwanda is just sort of a killing field and, and you wrote that it was one of the safest and most prosperous countries in Africa. That's right. I've got this controversial president, Paul Kagame, who rules with a very strong hand and has kind of started a, a war in Congo. But on the other hand, he's turned Rwanda from kind of genocidal ground zero into this very prosperous economy. It's actually a great place to go and visit gorillas for tourists. There's a booming tourism trade there now. The country is safe. Gorillas like monkeys or gorillas like fighters? These are big, big gorillas that are habituated to humans. They're mountain gorillas, and uh, it's an amazing experience. You said Paul Kagame, the president of Rwanda, was, was one of the most memorable people you've ever met. I think he's probably the most intelligent person I've ever sat in a room with, just this sharp, penetrating intelligence. He grew up in a refugee camp in Uganda, and he's more or less, well, he studied military intelligence in Cuba, and then he studied it at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. Huh. And he led a rebel army that disguised itself within the Ugandan army and then detached itself, came into Rwanda, stopped the genocide. Then he took power in the kind of aftermath of the genocide, and then he has rebuilt the country. Wow. And, of course, there's no blueprint for rebuilding a country after a genocide. He had to kind of make it up as he, as he went along, but he's a very, very smart guy. So he's more than smart. He's effective also as a leader then. Yeah, he's very smart, very effective, very ruthless. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, you, you wrote about befriending ethnic street gangsters in the next country over, Burundi. Yeah, Burundi, the poorest, most corrupt country on earth by a slightly unreliable measuring stick. I just happened to meet this, uh, he was actually an ex-junkie that was brokering peace between these ethnic street gangs of Hutus and Tutsis that had been kind of paid and indoctrinated by leaders to do a lot of the killing in the civil war there. And uh, Burundi was really upsetting and, and, and inspiring in equal measure. Uh, people were trying so hard and so intelligently to rebuild their society from this kind of Basically, as bad as things get in this world. And you felt safe walking down the street? It depended in whose company I was walking. If I was with one of the street gang people, I was fine. On my own, I was more of a target, especially after dark, and I, I wouldn't be on the streets after dark by myself. But then all the kids on the streets got to know who I was and who I was with, and then, and then I was safe. I find in much of the developing world, if you have a local person with you, it provides kind of a shield from a lot of the other con artists and beggars and so on. Yeah, exactly. Right. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Richard Grant, and Richard has written an engrossing book called Crazy River, Exploration and Folly in East Africa. Richard, you wrote quite vividly about your health challenges. Of course, you're on the river of bad spirits. Man, I would say... First of all, there's no help nearby, and you're getting all sorts of um, little bites and symptoms. And not so little bites, yeah. A, a tsetse fly bite is, is, is something. And, and not knowing what they are. Yeah, this was one of the last areas in Africa where the sleeping sickness is prevalent, and sleeping sickness is carried by the tsetse fly, also known as the spear fly. And it's, it's, it's kind of like a doctor's needle going in, and they sting you many times in succession, despite the fact that you're thumping on them with your fist. So you know what's happening. Oh, you know exactly, but they're really hard to kill. They're, they're persistent little, Jeez. little critters. And then what's the cure? Well, the, the, the first symptom is these big kind of red welted bites that you have would develop a yellow ring around them. That didn't happen to us, thankfully. And one of the cures, oddly enough, is that the chemical that cures sleeping sickness uh, is used 
in a woman's facial hair removal cream. And one way you can cure sleeping sickness is to get yourself to a makeup counter and eat that makeup, the facial hair removal cream. Eat it? Eat it. Eat it, Rick. You can't do it topically? Not for sleeping sickness. If you want to, you want to get rid of unwanted facial hair, it works great topically. <laughs> and uh, you talked about a snotless African flu. Yeah, I had this. I had this sort of recurring fever that was never diagnosed. Really, it seemed like malaria, but I was taking malarone, which is you're not supposed to be able to get malaria if you're taking malarone. And I went along to a clinic in Tanzania when I came off the river. Because I was, I was kind of hallucinating and had kind of fever chills and night sweats and lurid dreams. And I went along to this clinic and I kind of walked through the door and, and this kind of stench of sickness came out. And I, I looked at the people in there and I thought, whatever I've got, I'd rather have this than whatever they've got. They just look, they just look much worse than I was. So I got out of there and, and I got back to America. I tried to get it diagnosed, but uh, slowly and gradually it just went away. You wrote that Africans just generally feel unhealthy. That's not quite what I wrote, um, but there's certainly a lot of sickness and, and disease that they have to deal with that is on a kind of level that's hard for us to imagine. I mean, you see so many people that are suffering malaria attacks yeah. and dengue fever, and I mean, there's about a dozen fevers that would just make you feel bad that, that sort of people are used to dealing with. Richard, I'd like to quickly go over the tourism infrastructure. Obviously, there's no tourist information offices. Did you rely on local people for information, and, and uh, were they helpful? Uh, yeah, we relied on local fishermen, local riverbank farmers. There was a game officer. He seemed to be more interested in getting our money, and he didn't really have much idea what was down that river. And I have to say, on the whole... You know, you think of exploration as kind of how can you discover something when people already live there? But a lot of times the local knowledge was extremely unreliable and people had no idea what was 10 miles down the river from where they'd lived their whole lives. They gave us a lot of bad information. Was that really because they were so insular and the economy was so flat that people just didn't travel very much? Well, they, yeah, they were subsistence farmers. A lot right. of them had just come into that area from elsewhere. Right. And it sort of hacked a little clearing out of the riverbank forest and kind of planted some tobacco and some maize or some cassava. And, you know, they hadn't got around to looking 10 miles down the river. Did you have a feeling when you were traveling that people in rural Africa were, were particularly close to nature in a way that an American urbanite would have a hard time relating to? This is kind of a complicated question. Uh Yes, I mean, they live close to nature, but they, they didn't have the kind of ecological reverence for nature that we mm. assume from that. Uh, the word for a wild animal in Swahili is nyama. The word for meat in Swahili is nyama. Okay. So that kind of gives you a, a clue there that basically the sort of uh, animals are meat. Well, it's just a world of subsistence. Uh, well, certainly, yeah. I mean, the, the idea of, of not eating perfectly good meat as it walks by it can be a puzzle in remote rural areas to people. NGOs have trouble, you know, conservation NGOs. They go in, they say, you know, if you, if you stop eating these elephants, you know, tourists will come and bring money. And it's a difficult message to get across. Rural cultures ever are conservative. And they call their women, a beautiful woman's called a hippo. There is a, a phrase in Swahili that a woman is beautiful like a hippo. Uh, fat, as in most hungry places, is a kind of a, a thing to be admired and sought after. Like, it's good for men to have big bellies and it, it's good for women to have fat supplies. Fascinating experience. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been speaking with Richard Grant, and he reports vividly on his experience in his new book, Crazy River, Exploration and Folly in East Africa. Richard, when I talk to people who've been to Tanzania and come back, whether they're going in the safari bubble or not, they just come home with an empathy for the people of East Africa. And I think it's especially true in Tanzania. How do you explain that, and did you feel that at all? Well, I think that's really the, the point of travel, isn't it? It's to try and try and see life from other people's point of view. I certainly am not interested in travel that doesn't achieve that to some extent. It's really what it comes down to, I think. And people in Tanzania, they tend to be very warm and hospitable in general. And I think that kind of engages a more sympathetic response from outsiders. And then when you come home, I imagine you're dealing with culture shock in reverse. Yeah, I had severe culture shock coming back. 
the day after I got back to Arizona, where I where I was living at the time, I went to PetSmart, and this was after being in a hut in Rwanda, where the the guys who had done the killing during the genocide were trying to make up with the survivors of the people they killed. It's like a problem for them was was war and genocide and famine. And then you're in a PetSmart in America, and you're walking through the the aisles of the, like down the dog dental aisle and past the grooming salon, you know. And uh, I kind of picked up a $50 bag of dog food and I'm kind of feeling more and more spaced out and wheeling my cart up to the register and there's this sign at the register saying, enroll in pet massage school for only $7,000. And it just really spun me out. People don't know how to rub on their dogs right, you know. Well, there's more than a safari bubble, I think, and I think travel can, can help deal with that. Richard, let me jump onto your boat there on the Malagasari River for a moment, and uh, let's say the sun's going down, and uh, we've had a, a good day surrounded by hippos and crocodiles. Give me an image. Okay, so you, you pull into the shore at night, and you make your camp, and you, you pull the last of your famous grouse, and the bottle's empty, and I'm, I was about to throw away the whiskey bottle. And uh, my guide said, no, give it to that woman over there. And I gave this woman my empty whiskey bottle feeling a little embarrassed, and she looked at it like it was a piece of treasure. It was probably the most solid possession that she had in her hut. One of those things that gives you a little perspective. Richard Grant, author of Crazy River, Exploration and Folly in East Africa, thanks for sharing your travel adventures with us here. All right, thanks. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to Jim Richards at the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism and to Robin Cronin, Andrew Wakeling, Jonathan Lee, and Chris Luzik for technical help. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart travel to Turkey, Greece, and beyond. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next Greek or Turkish adventure, begin